Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Good morning. Suspicious suicides is our topic today. And what if a suicide isn't a suicide? Few life events are more painful and more far-reaching than a suicide. It brings suffering to loved ones. It brings shame to the family often. It brings guilt to those who are in closest contact or sometimes the person who had the last contact with the person. But can this same sad event be maybe interpreted in another way, maybe an accident or a homicide, and who makes a decision, and what are the deciding factors, and what are the pros and cons of either determination? We have many questions. And then, of course, there's the myths of suicide, and we'll talk about those. So today we're discussing this very serious topic of suicide, and my guests are Dean Beers and Don Johnson. Welcome to the show, Dean and Don. Good morning, Francie. Good morning. Hi, Francie. Thank you. Uh, first, I want to tell you a little bit more about Don Johnson. Uh, Don Johnson started out on active duty with the U.S. Air Force Intelligence Agency as a Russian voice Morse intercept analysis. That's hard to say. Um, and then following his active service, he worked as an executive assistant to an in-house counsel where he processed and investigated contract violation claims. He has a private investigation agency in Bloomington, Indiana, called Trace Investigations, where he's run that business for 20 or more years. He's a certified legal investigator. I'm going to ask you, Don, what that means, and worked for the Monroe County, Indiana Coroner's Office, conducting death scene investigations. Don attended Indiana University. He has been trained in intelligence analysis and cryptology. He's received certification from the U.S. Defense Language Institute. And uh, today he serves on the Indiana Private Investigator and Security Guard Licensing Board. He's a recipient of numerous awards. He holds membership in the National Association of Legal Investigators, ASIS International, National Association of Professional Background Screeners, and he serves on the Board of Directors of the National Council of Investigating investigation and security services called NCISS. Well, on top of that, he's written articles on the subject of suicide. He, for years, he was the editor of PI Magazine, and he's currently the editor of a trade magazine for, the, for NCISS. So thanks for joining the show, Don. Glad to be here, Francie. I, I think this is an interesting topic. I'm glad you chose it. I'm glad Dean's here, too, to help out on the topic. Basically, yeah, it's, experience. it's a, a really important, provocative, and serious topic. Well, is it true that uh, suicide is the leading cause of death in the United States? It's not the leading cause of death, but it, it is high. And, and uh, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta does studies frequently. I think the most recent one was in uh, 2000, uh, 2008. And um, suicide ranked as, at that time, uh, ranked uh, the 11th most common cause of death for all Americans. 
uh, accounting for 1.3% of all deaths. Wow. That's so it, it's it's up there. It's a significant number of people. Um, in a 2005 study of suicides, 79% of those deaths were by men. So it's uh, it's a higher statistical factor among men. And do they do they have any idea why that is? Well, men tend to use more lethal methods to kill themselves, such as guns. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of hard to recover from that, whereas women oftentimes will use uh, uh, overdosing on medicine or slashing their wrists, something like that, where death uh, occurs at a slower rate. Hmm. Interesting. Well, who who are the highest risk people? Well, men ages 15 to 24, that's where, that's where you're going to find the highest number of, of suicides. Uh, and then, and then the next highest is going to be the, the people over the age of uh, seventy-five. So, it, 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 you have the young young people and older people are your two primary risk groups uh, by age. Interesting. Well, of course, we've had the two most recent in the news the last three weeks: the unfortunate suicides of Tyler Clemente from Rutgers University and Seth Walsh from. The 13-year-old from California, um, which uh, young white males, interestingly enough. Well, uh, especially in the gay community, you see a you see a higher incident uh, in terms of uh, sexual orientation in, in the gays, and and for obvious reasons because of what the gay population has to put up with in in terms of, of being bullied and harassed and. And it, well, just the nature of of uh, how gays have been treated throughout history in our society. I mean, it's I would hope it's easier these days, but in terms of suicide, it's not. Uh, it looks like, and the, the incident of suicides among gays remains high. Well, of course, you mentioned bullying. Um, I mean, certainly with uh, these two young men, I doesn't. You, you can feel, even in the news, you can feel the pain that they must have felt um, with nowhere to go, nowhere to turn, and nothing that they could do to resolve the situation. Well, that that's true. Um, it, it, it's unfortunate. There, there, there are places to go, but I, I, I think the lack of education and, and not knowing where to turn and what to do uh, is a factor, whether it's, it's for a young gay person or just a, a, a young person in, in general who's suffering from, from depression. Uh, and oftentimes, those are family and others around the people, the individual aren't really aware of the signs either, so lack of education cuts across the circle of all contacts and family among these uh, potential victims uh, who are suffering from suicide ideation. They don't talk about it. Others don't recognize the sign because the signs by themselves don't necessarily say suicide. But when you combine them with everything that you see about that person's life, then then that person is crying for help or needs help. Right. What, What are the signs, Don? Well... As a person suddenly starts talking about death and dying. You know, one of the uh, lines I've run across before is someone casually says, "Well, maybe I'll just end it all." They're they're depressed or upset about something. Maybe I'll just end it all. Uh, the world would be better off without me. And 
I just don't care anymore. Things like that. If, if that kind of behavior repeats itself, then, then you, you've got a sign. And the person for another sign is, is suddenly starts acting out out of extreme rage or anxiety, behavior that's not normally associated with that person. Now, of course, in, in teenagers, mood changes, I guess, are, are normal to a large degree. Mm-hmm. And they could be signs of drug use and, and other things. But if untreated, that that can move on to suicide ideation. And mm-hmm. another factor, uh, sudden uh, excessive use of alcohol and drugs. Uh, people who go to extreme measures to, to get a drink to satisfy a craving for alcohol. Um, I mean, we've all heard these stories about people who can't get liquor, like on Sunday or something, will find something to drink, like mouthwash that has some kind of alcohol content to it. Mm-hmm. That could be a sign of, of uh, suicide ideation. Mm-hmm. Um, another one is, uh, especially in older adults, you'll see this, is a sudden urge to set all their debts, uh, change a will, give things away, and also suddenly... Uh, Converse to that is a sudden loss of interest in the future at all can be a sign of uh, suicide ideation. Well, and I've also heard that um, many times somebody who's been having a lot of trouble, um, all of a sudden their behavior changes and they're, they seem to be happy and satisfied with their life, and then, then they commit suicide because they've made the decision evidently to do so. Exactly. Yeah, they've they've made they've made the decision, and and it's probably going to be very soon after that sudden. Uh, brightness, so to speak, that that they will attempt suicide. So, well, that brings up a question: um, Are suicides typically done on an impulse? Because these two recent ones seem to be a reaction. There, there is some impulsive uh, behavior, uh, but also a lot of people. And, and I know Dean has experienced this his years as a coroner investigator. He's seen a lot of this. Uh, people, older people, there'll be signs that they've tried this before. On women, there'll be scars on their wrists, hesitation marks on their wrist, and and uh, and once you start investigating the life of that of that decedent, you're going to see other indicators and other signs, and people coming forward and said, well, he he was depressed, he was in the hospital, et cetera, et cetera. So uh, there there are people who it can take them a long time to do it, but uh, it, it varies. Well, it's uh, it's interesting that you use the term hesitation marks. I find I haven't heard that before. That's interesting. Um, instead of, um, I guess those are are alarms that are that should be set off in somebody's mind if they see marks on a wrist or. Yeah, exactly. A, a, a sudden bruising on the neck or scars or sudden uh, scars on on the wrist or something mm-hmm. like that. You know that that. That shouldn't be there, and especially in teenagers, the, you know, parents need to be aware of those kinds of things. And and you know, what goes on behind that bedroom door? You know, are are you communicating with your teenager? Do you know what they're doing when they're alone? And um, you know, some of the, you know, there are privacy issues, and every teenager wants his or her privacy. But if, if that teenager's showing signs of depression or alcohol use or or other mental disorders, then you you need to be looking for those signs of ideation. Well, I read someplace when, when I was preparing for this show, Don, that uh, there's an estimated, and they think this is a very low estimate, of 25 attempts to every actual suicide. Uh, it's, 
Yeah, I, I the figure when I when I first uh, wrote my last article, I should say on suicide. For every uh, suicide that is successful, of course, pardon the redundancy there. There, there are approximately eighteen attempted suicides. That that was when I wrote my article back in uh, last article in uh, two thousand one, I think it was. That figure I think has moved up since. So yeah, it, very, yeah, there are there are attempted suicides. Interesting, and so. Um... Depression does increase the risk, correct? Yes, absolutely, absolutely. Uh, depression, uh, any psychiatric illness uh, uh, brought on by a number of factors, including depression, uh, alcohol abuse, bipolar uh, disorder, as it used to be called, manic depressive uh, illness, mm-hmm. and uh, schizophrenia. These, you know, these are psychiatric illnesses that that can lead to suicide. And of course, it m- makes sense that drugs or alcohol would increase the risk. Yes, and, and there are some medications, uh, which, which Dean and I have talked about before, that, that, have, that have risk and can cause uh, ideation. Uh, some of the medications that are used to treat uh, mental illness uh, now carry warnings that they can lead to ideation, and doctors need to be aware of that, as, as do the families. Well, I'm just looking at, um, there's a website called medicinenet.com and uh, they've given some information here but it looks like we're going to have to take a break right away. Uh, Don Johnson is here with us today to discuss the provocative topic of suicides that may not be suicides. We must take a quick break. Be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. If you hear a dog barking or an angel singing, then you know that you're listening to Waking Up in America. Heard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific Time, Valerie Kirkard and all of her friends will bring you powerful and humorous discussions that raise thoughts and give you insight on how to live your life to its fullest potential. Adventure is always a must on Waking Up in America with Valerie Kirkard every Wednesday at 3 Pacific. 
Do you need directions to solve financial future? If so, the Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with a roadmap to making smart money decisions in every area of your personal finances. Join Jordan every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time, 3 p.m. Eastern for the Money Answer Show on the Voice America Business Channel. Learn how and where to get the best deals on mortgages, cars, and insurance. Find out the best ways to save for college and retirement. Get out of debt, improve your credit rating, and save on your taxes. The Money Answer Show with Jordan Goodman will provide you with great tips on investment opportunities in real estate, stocks, annuities, and other investment vehicles. That's the Money Answers Show with Jordan Goodman on the Voice America Business Channel every Monday at 12 p.m. Pacific Standard Time. Ask the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787. Hello? And ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. So since the suicide, just before the break, uh, I was just about to talk about a website called MedicineNet, uh, just as it spells, www.medicinenet.com. And it says that uh, regarding risk factors, um, eth- ethnic- ethnically, the highest suicide rates in the United States occur in non-Hispanic whites and Native Americans. The lowest rates are non-Hispanic blacks, Asians, Pacific Islanders, and Hispanics. And former Eastern Bloc countries have the highest suicide rates worldwide, while in South America they have the lowest, which is interesting to me. And then it says that risk factors for adults who commit murder-suicide include male gender, as Don mentioned, older caregiver, access to firearms, separation or divorce, depression or substance abuse. When it comes to children or adolescents, bullying or being bullied seem to be associated with the most increased risk, specifically male teens. Suicide by school shootings, being bullied, may play a significant role at putting them at risk, according to this article. And then uh, more uh, teens and children more at risk uh, for suicide compared to the adults is having someone you know commit suicide. So we want to call, we want to talk about that, that that thing called contagion or cluster formation of, of teenage suicide. So I'd like to now introduce you to Dean Beers from Fort Collins, uh, Fort Collins, Colorado. Um, Dean is a private investigator. He's an expert in criminal defense, homicide, and civil equivocal death investigations. He's also certified as a medical-legal, I can't say that, medical-legal death investigator and he served as a forensic autopsy assistant and has extensive background in medical, legal, forensic, and factual investigations. And he's authored two books, Professional Locate Investigator and Practical Methods for Legal Investigations, Concepts, and Protocols in Civil and Criminal Cases, which is going to be out on the market in January 2011. He also is a contributing author to a PI Trade Magazine with a column called 
forensic focus. He's a certified legal investigator, as well as Don is, the vice president of membership of the Professional Private Investigator Association of Colorado. He's a member of the National Association of Legal Investigators, National Council of Investigative and Security Services, World Association of Detectives, National Association of Medical Examiners, International Association for Identification, and also a Mensa USA member. Dean, thank you for being with me. Uh, what is important to you when you're reviewing death cases? Well, good morning, Francine. Thanks for having Don and I on. Uh, in, in the equivocal death investigations, what we're doing is trying to make clear the circumstances of that death. Uh, one of the things, uh, well, the first of all, the things most people think of, the evidentiary value of uh, weapons or, or implements that may have been used that may be uh, pills or ligatures, uh, firearms, knives, razors, things like that. But we also want to look into, as Don was giving us some great background, we want to look into that person, uh, their, their, their background and their history, the, the psychological autopsy. Um, and I know Don's written on that, and I have as well. And what we want to do is is look into the person's mind and lifestyle and try to determine, you know, what factors within that may have contributed to their suicidal ideation, uh, you know, their history. Mm -hmm. Maybe they had a mental history or, or terminal illness or some other issues. Uh, so we look into quite a few things with that. Does suicide, um, pre-existing suicide in the family make a difference? It can. I, I wouldn't, it's not like a genetic disposition, say. However, environmental factors, uh, mental health issues, uh, things like that can be a strong factor. Unfortunately, suicide, when it does happen within the family, is still sort of taboo. Um, and I feel that if, if it were less of a taboo, although we're talking about something traumatic to everybody, if a person is thinking about suicide, and as Don mentioned, they feel like they have nowhere to go, um, if they learn that somebody in their family has had such an experience and it's been taboo, that even puts them further away from seeking the help. So it, it can be a strong indicator that there's other issues that contributed to the past suicide of a family member that may have contributed to the current investigation. So there's a lot of shame attached to the family and friends. Yeah, family, friends, um, classmates, coworkers, uh, you know, because of our young uh, and elderly populations that are the most significant components. There's, And the younger, there's the peer pressure and things like that. And the elderly, there's a lot of end-of-life issues um, that, that may be involved. And in some religions, it's considered a sin. Oh, absolutely. Which would add to. Absolutely. Um, if I can quickly point out, I know we'll talk about myths, but that's one of the things that people need to realize is that although it can be taboo in uh, especially the Judeo-Christian faiths, that does not preclude a person from having suicidal ideation or, or committing suicide. It's, it's something to look into and, and consider as the overall components, but uh, it does not preclude somebody from uh, being unable to overcome their, their ideations. Mm -hmm. So when you, um, when you do a, a death investigation that is a suspected suicide, um, do you actually go interview family members and try to determine what the uh, medical history is and, and what the person was doing prior to their death and all those kind of things? Absolutely. Um, in my time at the medical examiner's office, which was about six years 
between training and, and part-time and full-time, as well as an autopsy assistant. We had the fortune slash misfortune of being uh, there with the family and maybe friends and coworkers and classmates, uh, you know, at, at the onset of the of the incident. So we had a chance to speak with anybody that we could. Sometimes they weren't open. Sometimes they were. We we were always authorized uh, under law to get medical records, which we would do complete um, scene searches and investigations. So we had that fortune. In the private sector, as Don can attribute to, when we do these equivocal death investigations, we don't have the fortune of the scene investigation, but we may have access to friends and family and coworkers and maybe even some more openness. Because they're looking into it and concerned about the death, they may be more open than they were in the beginning. Especially if the original death scene investigation was lacking in some respect for a number of reasons. A a mislabeled death scene uh, was labeled a homicide or an accidental death that could have been a suicide. So when you're looking back, you've got to take everything into consideration. Absolutely. And as as the three of us were talking uh, when we were preparing for this show, that uh, when a suicide is identified at the onset, when when the police or the paramedics or fire people arrive, then oftentimes there's no investigation done, and it's not handled. The crime scene isn't handled the same way it would be for a suspected homicide. That's uh, maybe I shouldn't say absolutely true, but it has a very strong component of truth to it. Uh, It's like anything else we do in life and in our jobs and professions. If we make a decision before looking at the information and the evidence, uh, we've done a disservice in this case to uh, a the decedent um, who we you know owe the truth to mm-hmm. as well as the family um, so when that decision is made it's not treated appropriately evidence isn't documented it isn't collected it obviously isn't reviewed um, or analyzed properly and in the private sector if that happens we have a more difficult time but at the same time we can take a more in-depth approach to it. Um, so if the family brings those concerns forward, there's usually at least a valid reason to give it some strong consideration. What are some of the factors that, you would, that you've experienced, Dean, where you think that it might have been a homicide instead of a suicide? What would be the things you'd look at? Well, there's various things, including the, the background of the decedent. We also need to apply that same background to the persons around the decedent, especially at the time of death. Uh, roommates, uh, family members, uh, you know, if there's, you know, say only one roommate in the house when, when there's a, a suicide, uh, you know, there's a, a, a lot of things that need to be looked, in, looked into for that. Um, if there were unusual relationships, if a late relationship suddenly went bad between roommates, boyfriends, girlfriends, husbands, wives, we need to look into those things. And, and the whole scene thing as well, if we can get photographs, uh, there's everything from blood spatter uh, or where things, including instruments and weapons, may be laying, how a body is positioned, if the body was moved, which is probably another whole show. Um, mm-hmm. So there's a lot of indicators that we have to look for. And if somebody rushes to judgment, uh, to use a, a, an oft-used phrase, a lot of that can be overlooked. Uh, when police first respond to a scene, uh, well, when paramedics first respond, their duty is to give aid or, de- or if they should be transported. When, the off, when law enforcement responds, it's to make the area safe. And then after that, if there's a determination for investigation. So during that whole process, there's people within the scene, there's items moved, there's a decedent moved, 
Um, people actually have leave, uh, you know, family members and roommates, um, and then information changes even within 24 hours. Uh, so oftentimes in both the private sector and the medical examiner's office, I would, I would call people 24, 48 hours later and see if anything was different or consistent uh, with what they were telling me. Mm-hmm. And your experience, is, has it been similar to Dawn's as, as uh, the type of weapons that are used by males or females? Yeah, it's, it's almost identical. In La- here in Larimer County, we actually have the highest rate of suicide in Colorado, uh, the high- highest or at least almost highest homicide suicide rate. And then nationwide, uh, last I read, I, I believe we were, Larimer County, unfortunately, was in the top ten. And demographically, we're like Bloomington, where Don's at, where we have a college population. Uh, we have a strong technology group uh, of professional workers that had some economic downturns. We're here at the mountains with Rocky Mountain National Park, and I've had people literally drive across the country just to come out here and see the Rocky Mountains before they've ended their life. Mm-hmm. So there's a and then there's we also have a strong veterans uh, population because we're near VA hospitals, so we have that situation as well. So it's demographically it's it's you know, pretty strong, in the, as Don explained. Well, and this idea where it, it becomes contagious that particularly applies often to uh, a teenage and college population, doesn't it? It does. Uh, between peer pressure, access to uh, alcohol and drugs, maybe they've never been around it. They, maybe they're developing relationships they weren't used to. They have stresses of school, stresses of work, uh, finances, um, and then and that's not even to mention if they have any uh, past history and mental health disorders that contribute to that. And you put all this together, uh, and it, it may be a perfect storm for their ideations to become stronger and more strong-willed, so to speak. Okay. Um, Private investigator Dean Bears is telling us about suicide cases um, that he has worked with, come in contact with, while working for a medical examiner um, and in the area that he is currently uh, practicing his um, private investigation business. We have much more to discuss. Stay tuned. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. Cali's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact Cali at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. 
IRB Search is simply the best online data provider for locating people, businesses, and assets. IRB Search gives you strength in numbers. With one click, you can access billions of records. Even with partial information on your subject, IRB Search instantly returns current and past addresses, phone numbers, and more. Call IRB Search today at 1-800-447-2112 to sign up. Mention PIs Declassified and you'll receive a two-week trial of 100 free searches to get started. Call 1-800-447-2112 to find out why IRB Search is simply the best. Step into the doorway to conscious choice, greater health, and well-being. Attain the balance that you've been seeking. Tune in and turn on 1111 Talk Radio. Feed the mind. Embrace positively. Release the tension. Step out of fear. Host Simran Singh will help you broaden your mind and open your heart toward a greater understanding of how to take charge of your life. 1111 Talk Radio is here every Thursday at 7 p.m. Eastern Time, 4 p.m. Pacific Time on 7th Wave Network. 1111 Talk Radio. Because shift happens. News. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Back to the show. Two private investigators are discussing the painful topic of suicide. What are the signs? What are the methods? And what are some of the behaviors? And again, I mentioned this um, medicinenet.com. Um, what often happens to the families is they want to, they become preoccupied with the reason for the suicide, why wanting to hide the cause of death or deny the cause of death and wonder if they could prevent it, have prevented it or feeling blamed for the problems that preceded the suicide, maybe feeling rejected by the person that uh, is the decedent, um, feeling that they might be stigmatized by others. Uh, survivors might experience a great range of conflicting emotions about what happened, um, and the, their grief is really complicated because it's more than just grieving. It's all these other feelings and, and uh, results of the suicide that family members and loved ones are experiencing. Uh, Don and Dean, I'll just open this up to both of you. Have you had uh, some cases that you could talk about that um, you could kind of um, describe some of the things that have happened with the suicide victim and the family? Sure, Francie, this Dean. Um, you know, we talked a lot about impulses and, and stuff like that. I mean, with, with the survivors, there's trauma, um, rejection, lack of closure, lack of answers. And the only person that can give us answers is, is, is the decedent. Um, I, I've had impulses from as young as 10 um, being told that they were grounded, and it was, in one particular case, it was the mm. first time it had happened. 
and he felt like he had so disappointed his his mom that uh, his uh, his choice was to end his life. Um, the very young age are very difficult because they can be so impulsive, along with peer pressures and things. And then I've had uh, a, a common age I find for suicidal ideation begins around 14 or so for some reason. And I I've, I had one one particular case. It, it began at 14. Um, and at 50, I believe it's 56 years old, um, after approximately 18 documented suicide attempts, he was ultimately successful. And that followed a rejection from his father telling him, you know, I can't support you anymore. Your mom and I are elderly on fixed income with health issues. And uh, he had a lot of other, the decedent, mental health and sexual orientation issues as well. Uh, but that seemed to be the final thing, and he, took, he used a... Um, a shotgun, whereas before he had done some slashing and, and pills and, and, and stuff like that. So that was definitely, as Don mentioned, you know, one of those things where, uh, you know, there was no turning back. I mean, he knew exactly how it was going to come out. How sad. I don't know how you recover from that as a family member. That <laughs> would be tough. Um, uh, one of the things we, one of the topics we haven't mentioned is autoerotic suicides. Don, could you address that? Well, I'm not sure an autoerotic can be labeled a suicide, although we can get into some legal discussions on that regard. An autoerotic death is an accidental death. Absolutely. Uh, You know, it's it's risky behavior gone real bad. Um, In fact, one of the most significant cases I worked, uh, it had, in my opinion, it had all the elements necessary for an autoerotic fatality. Mm-hmm. The uh, the original death was ruled a suicide by by hanging in an isolated location. A 19 year old young man and uh, the family, in particular the father, refused to accept that determination and uh, uh, pressured the police, pressured actually even his congressional representative to have the case reopened. It was eventually reopened by by uh, two successive coroners, um, but. But they, there was no evidence of homicide, and yet the, yet the father kept insisting that it was a homicide. And uh, I looked at it after all of uh, it was several years later. I looked at it. Uh, family attorney contacted me. Uh, it was after I, I wrote an article on on suicide, which was published in uh, the Legal Investigator, the, the journal of the National Association of Legal Investigators, and uh, uh, someone had referred me to the family's attorney and I looked at the case and I, I quite a, quite a bit I wrote my report I think my final report was 52 pages with attachments on it mm-hmm. and um, uh, if I if I had to make a determination which I I refused to do because as Dean said only the decedent can write that story um, I, I would have said it was probably autoerotic fatality. The the young man was acting out. There are signs that he had acted out before, which were ignored during the original investigation. And he was hung with a noose knot, and, and, and you very seldom see a noose knot in a homicide, in my experience. And um, uh, that's that's. Hmm. And he he simply passed out, and that's one of that's the primary danger of autoerotic acting out. Is 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 the practitioner, the actor, if you will, thinks that he or she has a safe 
release, a safe mechanism. Sometimes that can be a, a slip knot that if they, if they pass out, they'll slip and, and they'll fall and the knot will come loose. Mm-hmm. Or, or sometimes they just think, you know, if I get real dizzy, I can stop. Well, you can pass out and it's quick. Once you start depriving your brain of that oxygen, which is what autoerotic behavior is all about, it, it's, it's, it's that heightened uh, sense that that the person gets when their brain is deprived of oxygen and and it it enhances so they say the the erotic experience of of masturbation and and uh, you can pass out in twenty seconds boom just like that and you're out hmm. and uh, if there's someone not there to to rescue you or if your safety mechanism is is not safe then you you will die you will choke to death and um, it's it's dangerous behavior, and and too often times, uh, especially in the age of the internet, you see it glamorized almost, and um, mm-hmm. it's it's dangerous, very very dangerous. So, um, did I get off the question there, Francie? No, what? no, you certainly didn't. Uh, D- Dean, have you had experience with the autoerotic uh, deaths as well? I have, Francie, and Don. You know, Don makes some great points. You know. Sometimes if they like in a hotel room, we find the paraphernalia, but if it's in a home, unfortunately, usually the friends, family, roommates have have tried to clean it up. Uh, they've gotten rid of the instruments. They've they've even tried to change the decedent's clothes if they were cross dressing. They've uh, rid of the pornographic material. Um, so there's an unfortunate circumstance there because uh, because of the stigma and the trauma involved as well, and they do think it's suicide. Mm-hmm. And, because they and don't so, understand the autoeroticism, what it's about, and and you do you lose consciousness, and and you know a minute to two minutes later, you know you you you've deceased, mm-hmm. um, and it's uh, and there's mutual autoeroticism, but that's uh, uh, you know and and sometimes you know uh, the fail safes just don't work. Well, and you had a, a case with mutual autoeroticism with a male and female. I didn't have it. I had, I had actually read it uh, through, oh, it, through another person. Um, it, be, it, be, it became a well-known case that he had where both of them were, were tied in such a manner and their safety mechanisms, well, the presumption was failed on one, and that was the one that was supposed to take care of, he was supposed to take care of his, his I, I believe it was wife. And when he failed, she didn't either have access to her own or it failed and when it was initially rightfully investigated as a potential homicide because both were tied up unusually, um, and, uh, you know, a long investigation, I think it was even referred out to the person that, that I learned about it from uh, as an equivocal death, and then it was determined to be, you know, mutual autoeroticism. Yeah, I, I had one of those cases uh, several years ago. It was brought to my attention by a friend. His, his stepdaughter uh, had actually come to her mother and him about it, she was a high school teenager, and, and it was um, uh, her boyfriend was choking her during during sex, and she had blacked out a couple times, and she got very scared of this guy, but he insisted, you know, during their sex play, on choking her and 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 her choking him. So you know, it it was uh, it was uh, erotic asphyxia as opposed to autoerotic, which is you know self self. Uh, mm-hmm. An act of, of the self. It, this was a um, erotic asphyxia, and she got scared. Talked to her father. Of course, her father knew I was an investigator and called, contacted me, and what can we do about this? Well, 
legally there wasn't much we could do about it because the girl was already 18 at the time the boy was already 18 at the time so but we we did an intervention with this guy so to speak and i won't go into other details about that and 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 she stopped seeing him and and uh so that you see you see that behavior occasionally and and among consenting adults who practice this and and, and things can go bad just as in an auto erotic uh, act things can go bad in an erotic asphyxia where the partner is, is doing the doing the choking. Mm-hmm. You know, Don, you bring up a good point, if I may, just real quick, and that, and that's the intervention. Uh, when somebody, you know, sees these components that Don talked about, giving belongings away, mood changes, uh, new or increased drug and alcohol abuse, uh, if somebody doesn't intervene, there's a potential that somebody's ideations are going to elevate and result in their death. And intervention is part of what we're we're educating and, and talk you know today, but we're also touching on this intervention idea um, because of the resources that are available. Really good point, Dean and Don. Um, private investigator Dean Beers and private investigator Don Johnson are telling us about suicide cases or equivocal suicides that they have come in contact with while working uh, in the field of medical examination. We have much to discuss. We're not through. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Go behind the scenes of what you see, hear, and read on the news. Learn the ins and outs of public relations on Stars of PR with Cindy R. Every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time. Cindy Rakowitz is a Clio Award winner and founder of Rock and Roll Public Relations who wants to share her PR experiences and knowledge with you. Learn how to handle a crisis, deal with celebrities, and become a terrific PR executive. Listen to the stars of PR with Cindy R. every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time here on News Talk Radio, voiceamerica.com. 
would you do if you knew that you could not fail? The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basile, radio to thrive by. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Back to the show. Two private investigators are discussing this painful topic of suicide and the signs. Um, first of all, before we talk any more about suicide, Don, um, could you explain what Certified Legal Investigator is? Uh, certified Legal Investigator is a program which was started by the National Association of Legal Investigators many years ago, uh, shortly after NALI was formed in the late 60s. And it, it's, it's, it's an advanced uh, professional certification program uh, administered by uh, a subcommittee of NALI, uh, where you go through an extensive period of of, uh, of testing, and you have to have a white paper published, and then we do a live case scenario, an interview of the candidate, and then uh, if they are if that candidate is successful, they become a certified legal investigator. It's it's a very intense program, as Dean will tell you, and that that. that that hasn't changed since I I did it back in '97, uh, and I'm, I now serve on the CLI committee. I'm privileged to do that, and our, our chair is a, a fantastic investigator down in Houston, David Luther, and uh, it's an intense program. And uh, there are less than a hundred of us in the United States, and and we are we are investigators who specialize in litigation support, uh, mm-hmm. criminal defense, personal injury, those those kinds of, of cases. And both but, of you are uh, CLI designates. Yeah, I am. This is the. Um, I was certified last June in in Nashville, and Don was actually my uh, uh, my live case scenario and inter- interviewer, along with Rory McMahon, also a CLI. And uh, I'm new to the CLI committee. I'm glad to serve on that with David Luther when he asked me for our region here. Uh, it's a very intense process. My white paper, um, coincidentally, was. Uh, Comprehending and reviewing autopsy reports. Uh, and my white paper was on suic- suspicious suicide. So, and and Dot and I, we we have we've we've been sharing a lot over the last year and a half or so uh, on the topic. Uh, um, so yeah, they, there's a written exam that's pretty intensive. Um, 
and, and you have a time frame and, and questions, and you have to pass with uh, Don can correct me, but I think it's what eighty percent on the on every individual component. Each each component, I think I'm pretty sure it's eighty now. Yeah, we we are in the process of of reviewing the whole CLI program and you know updating it, and the questions change as the law changes, things like that. So we yeah. always are looking at the program to make it better and more relevant. Okay, thank you. I appreciate that explanation. Um, back to our topic of suicides, um, just to reiterate a couple of the, a few of the warning signs, talking about suicide or killing oneself, always talking or thinking about death, making comments about being hopeless or helpless or worthless, uh, saying things like it would be better if I wasn't here or being depressed or an unexpected switch from being sad to appearing to be happy or having some kind of a death wish, tempting fate by taking risks that could lead to death, um, losing interest in things you used to care about, um, loss of appetite, saying goodbye, putting affairs in order, tying up loose ends. All of those kind of changes of behaviors are major warning signals, which I actually will post a list on the PIs Declassified website where also I've already posted a list of help groups such as the Suicide Prevention Hotline. There's all kinds of uh, websites, um, 800 numbers and so forth that you can get through PISDeclassified.com. We are wrapping up the show. Um, Dean, would you like to leave, um, what would you like to leave our, our listeners with today? Yeah, a couple things. One, I saw, I saw that listing. That's great, Francie. Um, for that intervention component, 1-800-SUICIDE, you can't forget the number. Don't be afraid to use it. If you or someone you know has these ideations, experiences, or thought processes. And the other is that, you know, suicide, uh, you know, as Don has pointed out uh, extensively, the, the benefit of the doubt is given to the decedent. There's no automatic determination, so to speak, of suicide, even if the cops just walk in and see it as suicide. And I just wanted to, to point that out. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, okay, good. That's great. And, and Don, I think you had a couple of things you'd like to talk about. Well, exactly. And, and, and Dean, Dean set it up in terms of the law giving the, the, the victim the benefit of the doubt. And, and there are four elements necessary to prove suicide under law. And there's case law over decades establishing this. And is, number one is the intent. The two most important factors being, uh, of intent being a statement by the victim and a suicide note. Of course, Suicide notes are not always present, but the ideation, the intent um, needs to be there. Also, uh, uh, number two, a familiarity or knowledge of the fatal instrument in the case of a gun. How did this how did this man know how to use that gun? Where did he get that gun? You know, has he been target practicing? How, and and in, in women, if they did it by pill, where did they get this pill? To what? How did they know this medicine could be an instrument of death? Number three, history of previous attempts, and, and this leads into number four, but the history of previous attempts. There is usually a history of, of a previous attempt, but not always, but you need to look for that. And um, in a firearm death, in a firearm death, you know, are there cartridges laying around that boy's room, you know, in, in, in the female? Are there scars on her wrist? And number four, which Dean has talked about extensively and done a lot of work on, is the psychological autopsy, looking at the victim's life and going back uh, as far as you need to, but at least a year in that victim's life. And uh, and, and you're going to find uh, 
you're going to find something probably, a, a medical or psychological trauma or history mm-hmm. that, that could lead to that suicide. So okay. um, there, there, there are lots of indicators of suicide ideation, which we've talked about, which the literature, there, there's a wealth of literature now available on the Internet, uh, uh, authors who've written about it extensively, and the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in Atlanta. So there's a wealth of information. Education is the most important thing. And people should know also that they can ask for a second autopsy of their loved one. They can. And as part of my EDIs, we call them equivocal death investigations, I have a forensic pathologist, forensic toxicologist, both that I work extensively with that pill factor Don mentioned. Um, A family has a right to a second autopsy, um, and which may be by a literal physical autopsy uh, in the same medical environment, or it may be by review of the report which I do and or and and the slides which the, my pathologist will do as well as the toxicology reports and stuff so there's it's almost like your own private second medical examiner system that uh, people can take advantage of mm-hmm. okay all right thank you for that well um, you know nearly a million people worldwide commit suicide each year it's amazing and anywhere from according to the stats 10 million to 20 million suicide attempts annually and about 30,000 people reportedly just in the United States kill themselves. So this is, this is a, such a far-reaching topic, and when you, start, when you start discussing it, you realize how important it is to talk about. Awareness is one of the keys, awareness and intervention. Right. All right. And, Don, um, did you have, um, were you through with what you were saying? Well, I, I, I did have a, a couple interesting, an interesting closing uh, comment. Yeah, several years ago, I attended a lecture, uh, a professor of pathology, Dr. Michael Clark, Indiana University Department of Pathology in Indianapolis. Dr. Clark's now retired, but I, I made some notes during that lecture, which I later on used in, in, uh, in my end notes in one of my articles and credited Dr. Clark, of course. And, and there were two, two things that he said that, that stood out to me. Uh, guy was a witty guy, but he was also a really good pathologist. And he said, gun cleaning accidents usually aren't, and some cases are always equivocal. Okay. That's true, right. Don. That's a pretty good quote. Uh, thank you to my guests, Dean Beers and Don Johnson. If you would like to know more about either of these gentlemen, log in to www.pistickclassified.com. The details of how to contact Don in Indiana and Dean in Colorado are listed with their bios. If you have a topic you believe might be interesting to our listeners, please send a note to me, Francie, at PISDeclassified.com. Tune in next week to hear San Diego, California, private investigator George Michael Newman and former Navy JAG commander and attorney Judith Litzenberger discuss interesting details about military legal process as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. Every Thursday morning, 12 noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific. Thank you again to our sponsors who support the show, Ben Harrell, curator of PI Museum, Jimmy and Rosemary Messes of PI Magazine, Tamara Thompson of PI Buzz, and the information providers, IRB Search and Merlin Information Services. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. 
Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel. 